0: We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities.
1: And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller garcia We're broadcasting to you from the 4Patriots studio. If 4Patriots, they champion freedom and self-reliance give you and your family the tools to do so. You know, it's brownout season across the country. You might want to look into one of the special 4Patriots solar generators. It's powerful enough to power your fridge and even some medical equipment. Go to 4Patriots.com. That's the number, 4Patriots.com, and use the code WARRIOR for a 10% discount on whatever you order first time at 4Patriots.com. Networking is an important part of any business, and American Warrior Radio is no different. We often ask guests for referrals to other guests that they think might be good on the show. And I tell you what, we get a lot of you-have-to-talk-to-this-guy comments. Today, we hit the mother load. While our guests may disagree with being called the legend in the Special Forces community, that is precisely the word used by the person who referred him. And I agree. We'll leave it up to you to draw your own conclusions. He has led soldiers in operations spanning 49 countries across five continents. He's spent more than 12 years deployed overseas and participated in almost every major combat operation from Operation Eagle Claw to Operation Iraqi Freedom. These actions read like a who's who of bad places. Bosnia, Iran, Mogadishu, Haiti, the Korean DMZ. He's been awarded the Silver Star, the Legion of Merit, a Bronze Star, a Purple Heart, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs Staff Joint Meritorious Service Medal, among other awards. There's no doubt as to why he's a SOCOM Commando Hall of Honor member, the Ranger Hall of Fame, and he's earned the highest level Order of St. Maurice for the National Infantry Association. He is also the recipient of the 2015 Bull Simmons Award. Oh, and he's a character in a video game. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, Command Sergeant Major, Army Retired, Rick Lamb. Hey, thanks a
0: lot, Ben. I appreciate that. You know, you know all the, those are just stories, right? And they get better the more you tell them.
1: <laughs> Actually, as I'm looking at the clocks, like, man, there goes half our first segment. Just And I didn't even list half the stuff that you got on your bio. Rick, I tell you, it truly is a privilege to have you here with us. I've heard lots of tales about you, and it's good to have you live with us here on American Warrior Radio. I guess your bio is not that surprising given your family lineage.
0: I guess military is in your DNA. Oh, correct. Yeah, you, you bottom line, the, uh, every man in my life that I knew and loved carried a gun to work, and uh, either as a lawman or a soldier, and that's still true to this day. And my son's a, a deputy sheriff down here in uh, Hillsborough County in Florida. When I was growing up, you know, we, we talked to family history. It spanned, you know, the American Civil War through Vietnam. And as a little kid, I'd, I'd play with my great-grandfather's Union War kepi or, you know, Civil War Union Blue kepi. A man helped end slavery in 1865, and I thought that was pretty cool. You know, I also stomped around on my grandfather's World War One brogy helmet and his gas mask and learned how he was a tough hombre in the 90th Division and fought in San Miguel and the Argonne. And, again, my earliest memories of my own dad, you know, were him uh, sitting on the back porch in a set all the draft herringbone, twill uniform and showing me how to disassemble and clean a 1911 45 Colt pistol and an M1 carbine on our back porch. So, Rick, you were
1: disassembling and cleaning weapons before most kids had learned their multiplication tables, it sounds like.
0: Well, yeah, it, and it was, a, it was a different time. I mean, uh, you know, we, we weren't as, as afraid of guns then as we are now. And it, it was just, uh, I mean, like like going into the guard. My dad was in the guard. His brother was in the guard. So everybody that I knew went in the guard. And being in Iowa, I mean, that was just a thing to do.
1: Well, I'll tell you, Rick, I'm not that much older than you, but I, I'm somewhat jealous in that you were aware of how special these veterans are long before I was. And you were fortunate to be growing up in a time where a lot of, you know, the World War II and maybe even, gosh, some of the World War I veterans were still with us and were allowed to share your stories. You mentioned your first freedom isn't free moment involving uh, one of your coaches in the locker room. Tell our listeners about that.
0: Oh, yeah, it was uh, it was great. I mean, the history seemed really relevant back then. I mean, because uh, even the World War I guys were in their late 60s. They were my age. And you can see them at the VFW, the American Legion Hall. There was one in every neighborhood. Um, the World War II and Korean War vets, those were our school teachers and our coaches. And I uh, you was know, a kid, as a young kid, I cut lawns, I delivered newspapers, to, and, and half these guys had fought in North Africa. They landed in Normandy. I mean, they flew B-17s over Germany. We were in Taegu and Pusan. We lived next door to a Korean War nurse. But the very first Vietnam, you know, this guy besides my uncle's, I was in the locker room at uh, Franklin Junior High School in the gym, and the new assistant coach, younger kid, comes in and uh, and he, he strips down. And he's getting ready to get in the shower, and this kid's body was like this patchwork of skin grafts and missing muscle tissue. I mean, it was you almost had to look away. But that was my first "freedom isn't free" moment. You know, when I looked and I said, okay, you know, the freedom comes at a price. And you know, I learned his story later, and I, well, what a courageous kid. He was just an infantryman. You know, he was a private. So the word courage just seemed like it, it had an entirely different meaning in those contexts. Yeah, it humbled me.
1: You mentioned you joined the National Guard there in Iowa, if I'm not mistaken, right out of high school. You did go on to college, but college didn't take.
0: No. You know, it, it, it's funny because so both my uncles were in Vietnam together. I think it's 66. And uh, one of my favorite pictures of them is, uh, you know, they're up near Lai, I think. And uh, my older uncle, was uh, he was a colonel, lieutenant colonel of the Marine Corps. And he had a uh, fire base up there with uh, with howitzers, uh, 105 and 155. And uh, so his younger brother, went, you know, made the track to go up to see him. And, and they had this little family reunion outside the fire direction center hut. And I've got that hanging on my wall. But uh, So my uncle would go out with the LERP teams and uh, the SF, uh, Special Forces teams, and the Rangers. And uh, because he was a he was a squint, he was a map guy. So he would take uh, he would make picto maps. He would take the, the map data and then he'd fuse it with um, aerial imagery and make a picto map. It was a big deal in '66, not so much today. But he was the one that kind of hooked me in and said, you know, the, these lurks, these SF guys, these rangers that uh, that that I uh, you know I was going out with, were were the best you know that he had ever seen. So when he came back, he went into the guard and he had a recon uh, platoon over at the, uh, the the local armory. So I started hanging out there in high school, and I, I was like a uh, I was like a mascot, right? So I had an ERDL, you know, the old Vietnam camo uniform, I had a set of jungle boots or ranger patrol cap and uh, partial issue of equipment. And most of these cats were uh, were lawmen or first responders, and they uh, they were old Vietnam vets. Serious crowd. And I mean, they taught me how to you know, field strip an M16, how to how to shoot expert, how to uh, you know how to patrol. And so as a like a high school kid, um, uh, on one weekend drill, we spent like the entire day planning. Right? We 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 were conducting rehearsals to include a live fire weapons functions check. I mean, we finished our pre-combat checks. We did radio checks, bounce tests for you know rattling equipment. Everything had to be taped and tied down. Fresh coat of face paint. And then we entered the this, this darkened GP medium tent about 45 minutes before sunset, right? It's called evening nautical twilight, E E N T. And we sat down in our order of movement, you know, in the wedge formations that we were going to leave the perimeter on. And we were close enough to feel the guy to your left, right, front, and rear. And uh, we put sandbags over our head to simulate total darkness. And we sat like that for 45 minutes as my uncle, like, walked us through the entire mission When we're going to hit the line of departure, he was going to count us out. We're going to stop and do a a security and listening halt. And then, you know, who's on point, who's on compass, who's on trail, you know, who are the alternates, what are our critical nav points, what are we going to do actions on enemy contact, actions at danger areas. And he just walks us through this. And at the time, I felt like, man, I'm I'm in the dirty dozen. You know, I'm in this (laughs) this old movie called The Dirty Dozen. But what I would find out later in life is that's how Rangers did it in Ranger school. (laughs) uh, But as, as a high school kid, man, I was hooked. And uh, it, so, why the sandbags, right? Because we didn't have night vision devices. We had maybe two for the the, the entire platoon. But it takes like forty five minutes for the rods and the cones in your eyes to adjust to total darkness. So we're going to hit the uh, the line of departure right at EDNT, and we get a forty five minute jump on Charlie because his uh, his eyes wouldn't be adjusted. So we ha- we had to have an edge because you're your most vulnerable part when you're your point when you're leaving the perimeter because everybody on the perimeter goes hands off weapons because you got a patrol be even and they don't want to shoot them up friendly fire so you're kind of on your own for a certain amount of time and uh, yeah so I joined the guard out of, out of high school came back tried to go to college and finally my uncle aka my platoon sergeant said go do this for real. And uh, so he gets me an audience with the, uh, the, the Iowa um, Adjutant General for the National Guard. And the guy chews my ass for about 20 minutes, excuse me, chews my behind for about 20 minutes and uh, tells me you wasted good Iowa money uh, on training. But we're proud of you. Congratulations. Good luck. And they send me to the, uh, to the Airborne Rangers. I end up at 1st Battalion.
1: Rick, we're going to have to take a break real quick, if you don't mind. When we come back, I want to talk more about, uh, I mean, you've got so many stories, because I don't want to spend a lot of time with that, because I think it's just really important for people to hear this firsthand from your, your mouth. Ladies and gentlemen, As your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller garcia We're speaking with Rick Lamb, literally a Special Forces Hall of Fame guy. He's in the Ranger Hall of Fame. And and please Google the 2015 Bull Simmons Award. He was a recipient of that award for contributions to the Special Forces community. Rick, I mean, it seems like every place there was trouble in the world during your career, Rick Lamb was there. Now, I don't know if that makes you lucky or cursed or maybe a little bit of both, but I'd like you to share your experiences in some of those because I think that's the most powerful way to communicate to those of us who never wore the uniform about the sacrifices that you and your comrades make on our behalf. So let's, if you don't mind, sir, let's go in chronological order. Operation Eagle Claw in 1980, that was the mission to try and rescue the hostages that were being held in Iran. We did have Mike Vining on the show earlier, Rick. I don't know if you guys ever crossed paths. He was one of the original Delta Force members And was involved in that situation and and described some pretty harrowing moments trying to get out of that burning aircraft.
0: Yes, so I I was assigned to uh, Charlie Company, First Battalion, Seventy Fifth Infantry, the Rangers, First Ranger Battalion, and uh, we had a young wild-eyed captain named Captain Grange. Uh, He came from military stock; his dad, you know, dropped out of school at seventeen and jumped into France in World War II, ended up retiring as a three-star general, fought in Korea, fought in Vietnam, and uh, so that was the stock that uh, young Captain Grange was from. So when we got the 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 Ranger hadn't changed in probably 200 years. I mean we uh, we're the best light infantry in the world, but we traveled uh, on our feet and uh, we spent a lot of time in the swamps or you know denied areas, right, doing reconnaissance and so forth. So the Korean really, Hostess rescue really changed all that. So now we have jeeps and uh, they brought in these jeeps. So we had to figure out how do we load them, you know, the uh, how do we get guns on them, how do we how do we drive them. So then you know Captain Green said, all right, who drives jeeps in the civilian world? Who owns them? who drives motorcycles, uh, who are our best machine gunners, who are our best snipers, who are the kids that grew up on farms and could keep machinery running with uh, bubble gum and baling wire. And that's how we cast organized the company around those jeeps. So then we had to figure out how to load them, what was going to go on them, how many rangers, how do you get them onto the aircraft, how do you get them off of the aircraft, um, you know, when you start the engines, when do you break the chains, when you uh, load around in your weapon, uh, when do you do your comms checks. How do you get off of that aircraft? How do you get to your objective? How do you get back to your objective? And then how do you figure out where everybody's at? And if you got everybody before you leave a hostile nation, because we had never done that, and they put all that together with all of those new mission sets. You know, uh, parachuting kids out onto the runway to actually clear the runway. So we had guys that learned how to drive locomotive trains, learned how to drive bulldozers, learned how to drive tanks, whatever obstacle they may hit on on one of the airfields.
1: Rick, for folks who weren't around at that time, and I was just, I guess I was in my first year of college at that time. And I mean, just what a harrowing, what an audacious plan. I mean, in effect, we're putting a very small force, dropping it into an unfriendly territory or flying them in into this spot in the desert. And I tell you what, I've always felt for President Carter,
0: because if this thing had gone off the way it was supposed to, he would have been a hero. And the amazing thing about that is it came very close to being pulled off. I mean, had it not been just for a few hours of darkness, it would have been pulled off. And to his credit, he, he kept, you know, the next, in the part two of Eagle Claw was called Honey Badger. And Honey Badger was uh, was more rangers, more force, and uh, it, was a, uh, it was like a thunder run. You know, you go in and you take the international airport, you thunder run to where the hostages were, you pick them up, and then you thunder run back, and then you go home. But, you know, the arena hostage rescue. We We had done stuff like that before in Vietnam. I mean, the uh, the Sante prison raid, you know, came off of carrier decks. It was Air Force helicopters that dropped Green Berets 40 miles north of Hanoi. They got in, they got out. You know, the only thing that was bad about that mission was they didn't have the intel that the prisoners of war had been moved. But by 1980, we had lost all that. And that's the problem with the time that we're in right now is that, you know, we're we're post-Afghanistan. We're gonna lose a lot of our combat vets. We're gonna uh, we're gonna have trouble with recruiting, like we always do. And, uh, and so now, when we go into the next fight, we'll try to do the same tactics, techniques, and procedures from the last fight, and carrying the same weapon systems into the new fight. And we're gonna get our uh, behinds added to this. Yeah. No bueno. So that's that's the, the risk we run.
1: Yeah, yeah, Rick. Something else interesting. And if I'm not, I'm not mistaken, eight service members lost their lives on that mission, principally in the fire. Correct. correct. Okay. God bless you. It,
0: it was, yeah. Yeah, there there were there were some, you know, what we found was there were some subtle nuances to put an army ranger on an Air Force helicopter using carrier decks and then flying that thing. So the original helicopters that they said, okay, we don't have um carrier deck landing capabilities, so we're gonna have to use um navy helicopters. The Navy helicopter pilots were the were the sub chasers. They they were they were adapted at moving in squares. Um, so they had to put marine pilots in it. So as they as they started putting all this stuff together because those kids could fly half of the earth. And that's kind of where it got weak. But uh, I guess the point I'd li- I want to make before we before we move on is that um, the Holloway Commission did an after action report of that whole mission, and he said you were the best in the world at what you did within these stove pipes of excellence. But if you want to do this for real, you're gonna have to have a command that does man train equipment and resource. you're gonna have to command the command that does command and control, and you're gonna have to start training together. Get out of these stove pipes, you know, with the Navy SEALs in one pipe and the the Marines in another and the Rangers in another. So they didn't act on it. DOD did not act on the Holloway Commission report for about six years. And then that's when Congress legislated U.S. SOCOM into existence and we were off to the races.
1: So really, that was the birth of Joint Special Forces.
0: Operations. I mean, it did. It, uh, it, it birthed the uh, U.S. SOCOM, the Joint Special Operations Command. It um, the, all the the theater Special Operations Command, It birthed the uh, the component commands in Army, Navy, Air Force, and later Marines. And the thing that I always found fascinating was that was all Vietnam guys. You know, disgruntled as they were after 1975, you know, when they saw Saigon fall, they fixed everything uh, following. Uh, Following the hostage rescue mission, they set up five active duty special forces groups, uh, three ranger battalions, a ranger regimental headquarters, and then they staffed, you know, set up and staffed all of those, uh, all of those commands. And uh, it was a game changer. I mean, it made us the best in the world at what we do. There's nobody that does joint soft.
1: Rick, I'm not as experienced or as wise as you, but I found that I I often learn more from my mistakes,
0: uh, or my failures. Hundred percent, hundred percent. That was my first taste of, uh, or first smell of cordite, as it were, yeah. Well,
1: I'm I'm glad you, you got out of there, sir. I tell you, when we come back, I wanted you to introduce our listeners to a guy I had never heard of, frankly, and I'll probably mispronounce this, Vasily Matazook? Yes, Matusak, yeah. Matusak. And I, I, are you, well, you won't be the only one, but I find the interesting part about this engagement is this took place uh, November 23rd, 1984, a time when we were supposed to be at a you know relatively peace and quiet, and uh, <laughs> here goes Rick going out and earning a silver star and a combat badge. That's right. And
0: who knew? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host Ben Bueller Garcia here on American Warrior Radio. We're talking with Rick Lamb. Google his name. Google Rick Lamb, Green Beret, Special Forces, and you'll be amazed at what you find. Don't forget, you can hear over 500 episodes of American Warrior Radio. Visit AmericanWarriorRadio.com to downloads. We also are on all your favorite platforms iHeart, iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, whatever you use, you can find American Warrior Radio there. And ladies and gentlemen, please, please share these important stories with other people that need to hear them. Again, Ben Bueller Garcia will be back with more with our special guest, Rick Lamb, in just a few minutes. <laughs> Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. There's your host, Ben Bueller garcia We're coming to you from the 4Patriots Studio, where they champion freedom and self-reliance and give you and your families the tools to do so. Visit 4Patriots.com. That's the numeral 4Patriots.com. And don't forget to use a discount code WARRIOR for 10% off your first order. We're talking with Rick Lamb. Rick spent his entire career in the United States Army Special Forces. is just a true a true legend in the community, Rick. if hope you don't mind me saying that. We're talking a little bit about uh, your adventures. I'll use that that term advisedly. And a little incident, I'll say, that happened November twenty third, 1984, involving a Russian who was looking to defect. Rick, I'd never heard this story before, so tell our listeners what what happened there.
0: I was in a little unit called the Joint Security Area, and uh, we worked eight days a week. And uh, you do two days on the uh, DMZ in, in positions. Then you do two days patrolling during on on the DMZ uh, day and night ambush patrols. You'd have uh, two days where you were like on a quick reaction force, and then you'd have two days of training, and then they'd give you a day and a half off. Probably six of those eight days, you're you're actually sleeping in your uniform. You could you could actually unlace your boots, but you couldn't take them off your feet because you had to be ready to go at a moment's notice. We we just trained all the time, which was awesome. I mean, the, you're locked on that base, and all you had to do was just train out in the DMZ. So. Uh, there was a Soviet kid. He was probably 20, 22 at the time, and he decided he wanted to defect. So he runs across the uh, the military demarcation line, and he, he actually coaxes his uh, guard, his North Korean security guard, to come down to the, uh, the rural buildings there with him to get a picture. And so we know this because we got the camera. We got, covered the camera. So the first frame is uh, a picture of the North Korean kid with the U.S. and the South Korean kid standing in the background. The next picture is a picture of Matusak as he's running across the MDL, and uh, And uh, he runs right between the the U.S. and the Korean kid, and he goes, I'm defecting. Well, the North Korean kid, he pulls his pistol, and he runs after him into South Korea, and he's shooting. So he gets dropped right in the street. Then the guard tracks open up against each other, and then they call the QRF and uh, the quick reaction force. I had a, uh, another Cracker Jack captain by the name of Burt Mitsuzawa, and uh, him and Sergeant Merck, our platoon sergeant, I mean, they, they trained these kids so that everything was rote memorization. So we go down to the, the operations center because, you know, we get we get alerted. We're going to roll. And uh, I say, hey, my platoon sergeant and my platoon leader are not here. And he goes, I know. They're down to talking to the Red Legs. that They're down at the, uh, the, the artillery base just a couple of kilometers south, and they're coordinating for the night ambush because you had to leave target reference overlays with the red legs so that they could map your patrol at night. And so he had dispatched his Jeep and his driver to go get him because that was in the days before cell phones. So he said, you guys roll. So he let um, four staff sergeants leading you know, 11-man infantry squads roll on their own to this DFG defector incident. Of course, they linked up with us and, and uh, but but just yeah, you know, that was a, a thing that stuck with me forever. If you train your troops and you trust them, then you don't need to be over their shoulder. So they, they link up, but this kid comes across and a 40 man North Korean platoon chases after him. And we just so happened that when we got there, we dropped the tailgate, we got out, and it was just standard road memorization two squads online, bounding overwatch, one squad in the rear to flank left to right, and one squad goes gun heavy up to the high ground, and you're good. We just fight from that position. And so we rolled their flank. It was the bottom line. They, they'd come in kind of heading to the east. We had come in due south and uh, caught them. So it was like shooting ducks in a gallery. And uh, I think we killed four, wounded one. Uh, we lost one dead uh, Korean kid and uh, wounded one GI. So it was it was a pretty lopsided uh, victory. But the again, the saline AR comment after that was that was just like training, only it was easier.
1: Mm-hmm. So did the North Koreans actually pass in? They were actually in South Korea when you engage them, or is there sort of a
0: oh, a Oh, yeah. No, they, they, uh, they, they dropped probably about 100 meters or so into South Korea. And uh, cause we, we came across, uh, there's, there's a, a road that goes to the bridge and no return, and that's where we found the defector. He was hiding in the bushes, and we made him crawl to us. We got him. Jeep shows up. We throw him in the Jeep, and then we get him out of there, and then we just follow the sound of the guns. And they were beating the bushes trying to find him, and uh, that's why they, they were moving, like, from west to east. We were coming up from uh, south to north and just caught them in a, we actually, we fought them to, to a point where they had surrendered. So during that lull and fire, when uh, when we were actually going to get up and then, um, you know, put flex cuffs on these guys and kick their weapons away from them, let them take care of their dead and their wounded, the uh, there was a joint duty officer who uh, came and stood between the two forces and said, stop. You know, the CP soul, the command post down his soul has, has said, stop. And let these guys go out. You know, they 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 made a mistake. They know they made a mistake. We'll let them go home. So, uh, so he basically looked at the North Korean guys and said, "Get your dead, get your wounded, and get out of South Korea." And uh, that's where when we were able to get our body counts and such. But uh, yeah, it was uh, and it was a good thing that they called it because just to the north, uh, past the bridge of no return, there was there was two battalions of North Korean infantry fixing to come in. And just to the south of our our southern, you know, drop gate there in the JSA, there was uh, two battalions of American infantry stacked on the road either side, (laughs) you know, with a full double basic load of ammunition getting ready to come in. So it was fixing, you we we were fighting platoon on platoon, and it was fixing to go, uh, you know, battalions on battalions uh, within a matter of minutes. So they called it, pulled the plug.
1: Hey, Rick, that's the action for which you were awarded the Silver Star, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yes, sir. Well, only because, you know, for a short period of time there towards the beginning, there was no adult leadership. That was it. I was the guy with the Ranger tab. (laughs) Rick, I want to fast
1: forward again to, you know, you were involved in Operation Just Cause, uh, Haiti, Bosnia, Iraq. There's lots to talk about, but I want to focus on the 1993 Battle of Mogadishu. I've had a number of other guests on the show who were involved in that action. One was a Delta member and the other was driving the the first, the Jeep in which uh, Sergeant Pillow was killed. Uh, the very first uh, fatality of that. Now, is this, the Colonel Grange in this story, is that the same as Captain Grange from Eagle Claw?
0: Just yes. Just higher rank? Okay. So, yeah, when I when I was in Panama, uh, Colonel Grange jumps in with uh, 3rd Ranger Battalion into the jungle training school. And I'm getting ready to leave, and he goes, where are you going? I said, 7th Group. He goes, no, you need to come back to Regiment. And uh, so at the time, they, so they kind of set orders for, I was an 18 uh, Zulu at the time, and... Um, and they cut, set orders for me to go back to the Rangers, and I ended up in the uh, Third Ranger Battalion. And of course, we deployed to uh, to Mogadishu. I was the uh, I was the battalion ops sergeant, and uh, so I took a took a slice of the the company headquarters and uh, worked basically in the in the in the talk. And uh, so it was all old analog stuff back then. It was you know over overheads and you know satellite imagery and whatnot. And we'd have to find them and put the, uh, you know, draw the circles on the maps and get the get the stuff, but who, what, when, where, how, why, and as the helicopters were moving out and then and the but when, when we finally got tied to that piece of terrain, I had to take every able-bodied ranger off the wall. And, you know, we had cooks, we had clerks, we had um, the ammo NCO, we had uh, all the guys that, uh, and they were all rangers, you know, most of them had been to ranger school, and we had to throw them into an ad hoc uh, group of, uh, you know, rangers, and go out with the Pakistani tanks and the, uh, the Malaysian anti-armored vehicles.
1: Let me interrupt, Francisco, and I apologize, because for folks who don't know, this is the, the made famous in the Black Hawk Down, the film, the Battle of Mogadishu. So you weren't actually outside the wire in the first group. You were there when they brought the first wounded back. And then I, I read somewhere in, in an interview, you were talking about how you're looking at these soldiers are saying and telling them you've got to go back out again. And the blood just drained
0: from their faces, but they did it. Oh, yeah, no, true. And and, and you know, we had because uh, they had just made it back, and because uh, we we sent a we sent a convoy out and we we got them about the cave Ford's traffic circle, and we got them in, and, and we uh they they were all I mean, some of the guys were on foot. Their their weapons were all, or their their vehicles were all shot up. So we we put them into our vehicles. I think we were driving five tons. And uh, and took them back, and then I go up to, to give a head count to the boss, and he goes, "Hey, you know, refit, rearm, and get them back out. Wash the blood out of the back." And uh, you know, we got more Rangers out there. This is just the first haul. We still got two crash because the second helicopter had gone down. So he so said, "We got two crash sites, and we got to we got to get to them." And uh, so yeah, they they just they looked at it like, "Oh my God!" guys you, you, you get inside the wire, and you're like, "Ooh boy, we dodged that one," and now you got to go right back out. You know, and some of these guys are lightly wounded, so they just get patched up, and you know, put a put a bandage on them, get back in the truck. You know, some guys are cutting casts off because we had a kid that uh, had, had broken his wrist, mm-hmm. so he's cutting the cast off, putting mile an hour table on them on our table to to get back into the flight. But uh, yeah, it was crazy, and they they went out. You know, I, I remember just looking at one of the guys and going, hey, you know, we we knew this was going to be hard when we signed up, so let's go. The second convoy. His repulse We're supposed to link up with the 10th Mountain Division, and uh, we didn't even make it halfway into the city, and we had to turn around and go back. Rick, Rick
1: pause, your, pause your thought there. We've got to take another break. When we come back, I want you to explain to people why being the third, home being in a column is always the best, the sweetest spot. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Ben Bula Garcia, speaking with Rick Lamb. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. We're speaking with Rick Lamb, who's a full career in the Army Special Forces. Uh, quite, a, quite a legend in the community, Rick. I hope you'll forgive me for saying that, but that's my word, and I'll stick to it because it's my show. When we last left you, you were going back into Mogadishu during the Battle of Mogadishu, more commonly known as a Black Hawk Down. And you're in the third Humvee of three Humvees, and why was that a problem?
0: Oh, because we, we had a cargo Humvee, and, and our mission was, Yeah, I had all the cooks, the clerks, the, the ammo NCO, and uh, our mission was to dismount and then keep the keep the bad guys off of the, the Pakistani tanks. So we had to dismount, move forward, and then uh, set up a little perimeter around the tanks and then, you know, fight off the hordes so that these guys didn't get blown up. And uh, it was the serious I've ever been because I, I, I was scared I was going to leave somebody behind. You know, I was counting and recounting. I had my fingers. So we're, we're in a flatbed Hummer with no armor on it, and uh, so the first Hummer, Goes through, and you know, they, they've got a Mark 19 or a 50 cal, and the second Hummer goes through, and they got a Mark uh, Mark 19 or a 50 cal. So everybody's heads go down, you know, when when the when the boomers are going off. But then they they pop up and just start shooting us, going through it. We ended up having to to leave that truck because it you know it, it has run flats, but all four tires were flat. I think the uh, oil pan was shot out. We had a we had an unexploded uh, RPG round, you know, behind the uh, the passenger seat in the back, just stuck in that, that metal. And we'd had one that had just skinned across the hood. And uh, that was the one that took me out. Was um, It had blown up uh, in, in the alleyway, and I got a piece of shrapnel off of that. But we had probably two or three on that truck get wounded, and we finally thermited it, left it. And, uh, and then we I didn't have to do the Mogadishu mile. I did, like, the Mogadishu half mile because uh, the 10th Mountain uh, took pity on us and picked us up, picked up a couple of us, and we got to, got to ride in the back. It was a night to remember. It, 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 the thing about Mogadishu, been, uh, every ranger, every uh, every uh, National Mission Force guy that, that was in that operation changed the way that they did training. They worst-cased everything from there on out. because you, know, you get into this rut, right, where you, uh, if you're going to go in and uh, attack a building, put the door charge on, you blow it up, you throw some flashbangs, you go in, dit, 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 hit all the targets, and then you come back out, reset the target, baby. But this was the one where everything went wrong. You know, we, uh, we lost our ability to move, we had crash sites we had to get to, you know, we, had, we had dead, we had wounded, um, we had leaders taken out of the fight, so so from that, we we, we trained for the rest of our careers in full kit, and we worst cased everything. We'd take key leaders out in the beginning, we'd get, get kids wounded in the beginning, we'd have the medics get on them, we'd fight all the way onto the objective and all the way off the objective, so that, again, another learning point that I think was not lost on any of those kids that survived that fight.
1: Rick, you're awarded the Purple Heart for that shrapnel wound, and that that piece of
0: metal is still up inside your head somewhere. It is. They they tried to get it out, but uh, the doctor was trying to remove it. Said, you know, you came in with all your faculties, and I didn't want to be the guy to shut you off like a switch. So you left it in there, sewed it up. I had to stay in the hospital for about a month because I got infected, and uh, so they pumped me full of meds. They, they actually did a main line through my pec into the uh, one of the main arteries coming out of the heart because it kept collapsing. All the arteries and you know, all the all the junk that they were putting in there. So, but it, it cleared up, sealed up, and it's uh it's still in there. And you went back to active duty? I did. Right. Yeah Yeah, uh my, I had all my faculties, and I was able to. I, I think I did another ten years. I, I finally retired in 03 out of Iraq.
1: So. Rick, I want to change the subject. I, we really will have to have you back, sir, because like I said, you're you're probably a. We're trying to just squeeze four hours worth of stuff into into one hour show, but. Given the, what's happening right now in our country I definitely, and your leadership and your family history and your reputation, I want to take just a couple of minutes to sort of gauge your perspective on the trouble that we're having. I thank God every day there's men like you and, of course, women out there as well that, that volunteer to, to stand watch on the ramparts to protect us. But I'm very concerned that, I mean, we're having such trouble recruiting and this just seems like a very dark time for our nation.
0: It is. Uh, but we've, we've been here before. But I think part of it is, is, is our kids. The country's changed. There's no arguing about that. It's not the country that we grew up in. But, you know, countries ebb and flow. We always have. Uh, but we have it too good, I think. I mean, in large part because of the sacrifices that uh, the brave men and women in the military make on our behalf. But most of those kids are from the same 84, 86 percent of them are from the same military families. And, and I think part of that is because they want to be like mom or dad, and uh, it, it's seen as a viable employment opportunity, but a lot of kids don't. You know, they don't see it as an as, as a, you know, employment opportunity. I go back and forth, back and forth on this. You know, so, so one of the things I did, right, in 2005, you know, I'm out of the military. My son's about 12 years old, and he's spending too much time inside. I mean, they're, you know, these kids today, they're addicted to these video games. So I intervened. And that's data point number one, dads need to intervene. And uh, get off the sidelines and then jerk a knot in them. And uh, you know, don't be afraid to be a dad. So we, uh, we, we mapped his fashions. We got a legal pad and we said, all right, um, we're going to live at times on the video games, but uh, I see that you like to fly airplanes, shoot guns, and you know, do all the things that the kids like to do. So he learned how to fly a, a no kid kidding airplane, Cessna 182. Uh, we got a brown-oad manual, we built a real pistol, a real carbine, and a real rifle, and then I taught him how to shoot it safely. And then he learned how to scuba dive. He learned how to tack up and ride a horse. He jumped out of an airplane. He trained in mixed martial arts. He could run eight miles in accordance with the airborne standard. He could bench press more than his body weight, right? And so I also made him go to college. And that costs money. You know, guys say, oh, didn't that cost a lot of money? I say, yeah, it costs a lot of money, but no more than an abortion or, you know, uh, getting a new license or legal charges, you know, those kinds of things, you know, paying doctors and lawyers in the state to clean up mistakes afterwards. So if you catch them early, catch them young. You know, the uh, it's an investment. He's
1: the one that's about the law enforcement officer now.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, I had him sign a, uh, a, a contract, and I said, no piercings, no tattoos. He said, Dad, you have piercings and tattoos. I said, I know. That's why they're number one and two on the list. But no, 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 no smoking, no, uh, you know, no drinking, no drugs, no running with the law, no, no sass your mom, no bad grades, and, and he signed that because I was going to bankroll everything on the other side, which is you know the, the flying and the diving and the shooting and everything else. I said, you violate these, then uh, then you're out. So we fast forward. Uh, he's a senior in college at USF. We're running a range with the sheriff's department uh, for a wounded warrior shoot for USOCOM. And the deputy sheriff who's opening the closing the ranges comes up and says, when do you get out of the military, son? Because my, my son was running one of the events. He goes, I'm a senior at USF. He pulls a card out, and he gets ready to hand it to him, and he pulls it back, and he goes, do you have any piercings? Do you have any tattoos? And he goes right down the list. Did you ever run in with a law? Did you ever smoke dope? And my son starts to laugh. He says, no, I'm about clean. That guy could pass a light detector test. And he ends up, they said, we'll, we'll pay for your academy and we'll put you on the streets. Now he's on the dive team. He's a detective down here. And so I say that to all the dads And that, uh, you know, inter- interventions early and often and set high standards. I mean, it's not that hard in retrospect. But uh, yeah, I'm sure he had some, some, some times where he just, didn't want to be with that draconian Sergeant Major anymore, but uh, he's a good kid, and I'm proud of him.
1: Well, I am, too, and I've never met the kid. Rick, we've just down to about a two and a half minutes. Um, I just wanted, to, for folks, um, gave your kid a hard time about playing video games. You are in a video game. We were referred to by Sean Piatz about the, the video game with them front lines, and you're one of the first guys to sign up for that, so I hope that that turns out well, and I'll put the link to that podcast in the notes for this show for so folks can learn more about that. and some of the things that hopefully it's going to do to help treat PTSD and and help our warriors out there. Uh, Real quick, Rick, uh, I said, about two minutes, but you'd mentioned the Round Canopy Parachute Team, which is one of the organizations you support. Folks can learn more at rcptusa.org. And uh, you'd mentioned you actually jumped out of a plane with a couple of paraplegics, and what a wonderful moment that was.
0: Yes, and uh, and so there's two two kind of parachute teams out there, the Phantom Airborne Brigade. And they're, they're a great organization. They, they focus basically on, on guys who are already military trained. And uh, so that sets them a little bit apart from the round canopy parachuting team. So if you're already military trained, then then, then check out the uh, the Phantom Airborne guys. If you're not military trained, you know, we'll train kids in high school at the round canopy parachuting team in two training events. And we, we've got a lot of vets that, that jump. And the big thing for the round canopy boys is they jump into Normandy. They do it every year. And, I mean, if you haven't been to Normandy, it's surreal. But, yeah, with the the paraplegic rangers, we, we were with the um, the Phantom Airborne Brigade, and they taped their feet and their knees together and dropped them out like a door bundle over Lake Dora. So they arrive in wheelchairs, right, it, but they jump out of airplanes, and they're steering canopies, and they're right back into it. So I, mm-hmm. I tell the guys it gets you in shape. It uh, it gets you that adrenaline fix, and you've got the camaraderie that you had when you were on active duty. So either one of those organizations, the round canopy parachuting guys, I love them. And also the Phantom Airborne Brigade. I, I belong to both. And uh, so just uh, give them both a try because that uh, that will get you back uh, to the tribe where you need to be.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, please also check out the Global SOF Foundation, gsof.org. That's another organization that Rick supports. Rick, we had just a wonderful time chatting with you, and I promise we'll have you back on soon. Beautiful. Looking forward
0: to it. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate it.
1: Well, and thank you so much for spending time with our listeners uh, here today, sir. And um, you stay safe out there. All right, you too. And my best to your son,
0: too, by the way. Thank you, sir. I appreciate
1: it. Ladies and gentlemen, another great American Warrior Radio show. You can find this and other 500 other podcasts at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. Check us out on your favorite streaming platform. If you support what we do, pay you a visit to patreon.com forward slash Radio. If you invest in our program, we'll get you some very cool American Warrior Radio swag. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, all policies and procedures are remaining in place. Take care.
0: listening to American Warrior Radio. Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.